thankful again for the opportunity to speak about the topic of fellowship. I pray that these lessons will be helpful for you uh, as they have been helpful for me as I've prepared them. Uh, thinking about our study last night and uh, recognizing that biblical fellowship is only significant if we begin with our fellowship with God. And uh, we talked about, uh, as Jason mentioned, uh, the Holy One of Israel is dwelling in our midst. And Isaiah 12, 6, that verse begins with cry and shout aloud. Uh, and it's, we noticed all those verses surrounding that text. of It's, it's rejoicing and singing and, and that sort of thing. And just to follow that up and, and to continue the thought uh, from yesterday's lessons in uh, thinking about that passage from Isaiah, we noted how from Jesus and what he did for us in Isaiah 53, you have the reaction to that, for example, with the eunuch. And we talked about Isaiah 56 and how the eunuch is no longer considered to be a dry tree, but that he is able to come into full fellowship with God. And we made that connection with the Ethiopian in Acts the 8th chapter. Do you remember how that story ends in Acts 8? After the beginning in this scripture preached unto him, Jesus, Philip did. And as they're studying through that, behold, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? They go down into the water and they come up out of the water. The Holy Spirit catches Philip and sends him on to Caesarea. And the text tells us that the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. I just think it's, it's just so poetic to, to imagine that joy of knowing that he has fellowship with God. And often the question is given for that Ethiopian, whatever happened to him? And it's one of the challenging things about the book of Acts. We almost never find the ending of anybody's story. Paul's even, you know, what happened to him after Acts 28? Where, where's Acts 29? You know, I want to know how it concluded. And we're just not told that. I think with good reason, uh, this would just be my summation, but we're left to ponder those things. And we need to see that it's not about them. It doesn't matter for us exactly how they ended, but how will the story end for us is what we ought to be thinking about. The Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. When he got there, did he find a congregation? I hope that he did. The, the Lord's going to take care of all of that. But one of the things that we can see from many other passages is that it ought not to end. Our biblical fellowship begins with our relationship with God, but it doesn't end there. And so we're going to talk uh, this afternoon, beginning with this lesson, to, to discuss how fellowship is beautiful. And if you want to be opening your Bibles to Psalm 15, I'm especially thinking about our fellowship with one another. Uh, I don't know how often you've thought about our fellowship with one another being beautiful. Hopefully, We'll make that point clear and we'll understand the importance of fellowship with one another. Psalm 15 is describing fellowship with God. Verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now the answer to that, look at verses 2 through 5. How much having fellowship with God in verse 1 depends on how we behave with each other. They are inseparable. It's kind of like the first and second greatest commandments. They're, they're inseparable. The person who, can dwell, who will dwell with God in his holy hill, verse 1, is the person who walks uprightly and works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart. He does not backbite with his tongue, nor does he do evil to his neighbor. 
He does not take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, he does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Most of the things that are discussed there are about our interaction with other people. And so that's what we're going to focus and, and spend our time on. While we're in the Psalms, let's go ahead and look at another one, Psalm 133. And this is really where I got the title for this lesson or the idea that our fellowship ought to be beautiful. Psalm 33, a very short psalm. Uh, psalm 133, excuse me. Psalm 133, very short psalm. The New King James, what I'm reading from this afternoon. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Just pause and think about that. How good and pleasant it is. We will spend some time talking this weekend about how nasty it is, how, how ugly it is when there's disunity, when there's division. But what we want to do is have this unity. And from God's vantage point, how good and how pleasant it is. That's what God wants. Verse 2, he says, it's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. I don't know that we would necessarily think about oil running off of somebody's uh, head and beard and down their clothes as being something beautiful. But the emphasis here is of Aaron. It's of the high priest. It gives us a picture of Leviticus 8 and 9 of the, the institution of the priesthood and the beginning of this relationship with God as the, whole, as the high priest being the mediator. Aaron and his sons, they, they were anointed with oil. And so this oil running down off of them, how significant that was as it begins this relationship with God. He says, that's the way that our relationship is with other people, with each other. And then in verse 3, he says, It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, until I began to try to think more deeply about biblical fellowship and unity, I just sort of skimmed over this verse. And okay, so it's talking about Mount Zion. Uh, that, that's a beautiful place. And, so, and that's not what it's talking about, I don't believe. It, it, it is talking about Mount Zion. It's just not the Mount Zion that we think about. Um, when it says the dew of Hermon, here is a picture of Mount Hermon. Uh, it is right on the border of Israel. The Zion that is mentioned here is not the Zion of Jerusalem that we normally think about. If you have a marginal reference, I don't normally encourage people to, to follow too closely to those, but it might be helpful if you have there in verse 3, it probably says Deuteronomy 4.48. And if you go back to those Deuteronomy passages, you'll see that there was another Mount Zion spelt differently a couple, of, a couple of different ways in the Old Testament, sometimes with an S and sometimes more like Syrian. There was another Mount Zion over on the east side of the Jordan where Mount Hermon is. Uh, Mount Hermon is a part of that mountain range. That's the one he's talking about. Deuteronomy 4.48 makes that abundantly clear. And why the psalmist is describing it here is it is the highest point in the land of Israel. 
to today, uh, if you Google it, don't do it now, but if you Google Mount Hermon in Israel, you'll see all sorts of pictures come up for a ski resort because that's what's there now. Uh, it is extremely high mountain as the picture uh, shows us here. And down below, while here in this picture it is green growing and so forth, at different times of the year it wouldn't be so. And those who lived down in the valley, down in the lowland beyond that, would indeed be anticipating the snow melting and the water coming down and the dew coming off of Mount Hermon to provide life for that which is below. Now think about that for a moment. Mount Hermon is going to be, just whatever high mountain range, it's going to be providing life for what is coming down lower. Well, that's a picture that we have of God. You know, we often see him on a mountain and he's bringing life to those who, who are lower. I think that's the image that you have. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, our unity is being compared to the highest mountain in Israel, bringing life, bringing water to uh, the lower lands. It's like it's being compared to the institution of the priesthood. God is highly cherishing and valuing our fellowship with one another. Uh, I don't know that I'd really thought enough about that and perhaps just saying this in just a couple of minutes this afternoon uh, won't give you the full appreciation if you've not considered it before, but I would encourage you to, to, to consider that, to meditate on that, how much God cares about our unity with one another. In fact, God cares about it so much. Look over in the New Testament at John, the 17th chapter. John chapter 17, probably a passage that many of you here would be already familiar with. It's the prayer of Jesus. And he's praying about oneness. He begins to pray about oneness between him and the Father. And then he transitions to oneness with the apostles, with those of his disciples there. And then he goes on to talk about that, the, that all of his followers would have this oneness. Pick up in verse 20, for example. It says, I do not pray for these alone, talking about the apostles, the immediate followers, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. So those who the apostles would teach and be taught and so forth. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus is praying that his disciples be one, that they be one with him and with the Father and with each other. You know, if, if I'm one with God and you're one with God, we're going to be one with one another. There's no other way for that to, to take place. Uh, we can't have a relationship with God 
without having a relationship with God's people. But what really strikes me about John 17 is the timing of it. Jesus is praying, and he spends a chapter in the book of John to discuss this prayer of his for oneness of his followers. And he's doing this on the night in which he's going to be betrayed. You know, we, we emphasize the Lord's Supper, as, as Paul does, on the night in which he was betrayed. On the night in which he's betrayed, Jesus was deeply concerned about fellowship of his people. It, you're on your deathbed, and you know that you're going to die soon. What things are you so concerned about? We might have, a lot of our lists would be the same. Some of them might be different because of the circumstances that we're in. But what we see the Lord being very concerned about was his followers being one. We can't impress upon our minds enough this idea that we need to have fellowship with one another. Uh, turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Ephesians, if you would. Uh, we're not going to read all of Ephesians 1 and 2, uh, but I'd like to point out how the book of Ephesians, as Paul is writing to these Christians, how he emphasizes, amongst other things, but he greatly emphasizes biblical fellowship with one another, unity amongst God's people. And as we go through this, let me mention, as I've tried to think about in preparing these lessons for this group, and knowing that the, the church here, the Christians that are studying and meeting together, are similar in size to the group that I meet with currently in Elmira. We have about 27 to, to 30 people, I guess, on, on Sundays. With a larger congregation, any of you that have ever been members of larger congregations, unity, fellowship, it's easy to avoid that with you know, you just don't get along with somebody or they don't, like, they don't like you or whatever. And you can sit on the other side of the building and you can kind of come and go. And maybe you cross paths in the foyer and you say hello or whatever. But you can really avoid people. I'm not saying you should, but you can avoid people. In a smaller congregation, it really becomes critical. It's, it's urgent and important in every congregation but the smaller number you are, it becomes very obvious. It, it, you, you can't hide division. You can hide it in a larger congregation. It's just as bad, but you can hide it. But in a smaller group, we have to see, man, I've got to do everything possible to be united. You should do that if you move to a larger congregation. But I'm talking here and thinking about, man, we really have to focus on this. Uh, I have six children. Four of them are out of the house. Three of them are grown and married. One of them's in college. I have two at home. When I had all six at home, it was a lot of chaos at times. It was a lot of fun at times. But if some of them didn't get along, there was always somebody else to play with. There was always somebody else to, to go to their room and hang out or, or whatever. I'm down to two now. <laughs> Noah and Lydia They've got to get along, you know, they've only got each other, you know, it's Beth and I against them. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've got this uh, scenario in which the smaller group we get, it just becomes really clear. And when Noah and Lydia don't get along, they're they wonderful siblings, they're a blessing to each other and to, to me. 
But when they don't get along for whatever silly reason, it's so obvious in our house, in our, in our small apartment. It's like, okay, guys, sit on the couch. We're going to talk this through, okay? I don't know what, who did what, but we've got to... You see how the smaller setting you are, how you really need to, okay, we've, we've got to resolve this. If there's a problem, we've got to, to take care of it. And we've got to do it quickly. And some of these passages we're going to talk about, I think, are really going to, to drive that point home that we're brethren. We're brothers and sisters, and we've got to think in that kind of a setting. And so I don't know of any problems here. I'm not suggesting that there are there will be. If there's not now, there will be. I mean, we're humans. We're, you know, we're like my kids uh, or me. Uh, and, and so things will come up and somebody will annoy you and somebody will get on your nerves. And we've got to remember, I, I, I've got to, as Barney Fife used to say, nip it in the bud. Uh, I've got to take care of this really quickly. Uh, I've, got to, I've got to resolve this fast. Ephesians helps me to see with greater clarity the fact that we have this relationship and we need to be working toward that. In uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 uh, through chapter 2, really all the way through, it's tough for me to know where to, to start and, and stop with this. Uh, I'm not going to read through the text, but I want to point out some verses here as uh, we, we look at this uh, larger text. In uh, Ephesians 2 and in verse 14, it says, for he himself, talking about Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has, made one, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Do you see verses in there that point to us being unified, to, to us having fellowship? Uh, I think there's a number of them. For example, in verse 15, and I'm just mentioning a, a few of them as we go through. In verse 15, you have this idea of us being one man uh, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. Uh, not two, from the both, he talked about in verse 14, from the both he made one. And so he's saying that they needed to have this unity. He'll talk about that over in chapter 3 and verse 6. We'll get to, again, he mentions there that of the same body. Drop down to verse 19 of chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the body of the household of God. And so he says that they are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. We're talking about fellowship. Uh, we need to see ourselves as citizens together. Uh, that's the idea that's given. Continue reading in verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole body, verse 21, in whom the whole body being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so he's describing then God's people together as this holy temple, the dwelling place of God. Sometimes our physical bodies are described as the temple, that God dwells within our bodies. 
Sometimes, like this passage is talking about us as the body of Christ, God dwelling in us. I think that's the idea that's here, not our physical bodies, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, but here, us together as the body of Christ, God dwells within us. Let's pause here and think about a couple of these ideas that he's trying to emphasize to the Ephesians. What makes this such a challenge in Ephesus in the first century and in Galatia and in Rome and in various other places is that they had Jews and Gentiles together. And Jews had all of their history, uh, the old covenant, their old traditions. Uh, they had their old ways of doing things. And a lot of those were God-ordained, but not all of them were. And some of those were being pointed out that they were simply intended to bring people to Christ. And then they weren't expected for the world to continue following them. The Gentiles, on the other hand, came from idolatry. Uh, some pretty ugly pagan practices, uh, gross immorality. You know, as you read through the Old Testament, many, many times when you see idolatry, you see immorality connected with it. Probably more often than not, idolatry and sexual immorality went hand in hand. And so these pagans, these Gentiles, would be coming from that vantage point. Or maybe they came from a vantage point that they knew that those things were simply superstitions. And so they didn't really have a deep belief in God, and that would have led them to other practices. But now they have been joined together in Christ. And man, trying to, to move those two groups and make them one, would th that's very difficult to do. And I don't know what your all's backgrounds, at least most of you, I don't know what your backgrounds are. I mentioned last night that uh, I didn't come from a family of Christians. My dad was a good moral man in many respects, uh, but he didn't teach me about Christ and uh, about God's will. And so I came from a background that would be more along the line, what I described my family as being as practicing atheist. Um, uh, you know, we would have claimed to have believed in God, but we weren't really following him in any significant way. So we were practicing atheism, uh, even though we wouldn't have used that word to, to describe ourselves. Others come from extremely religious and, and extremely conservative backgrounds. And sometimes when I meet those people, the, there's, there's a crash because we, haven't, we have different baggage. And uh, we, we come in, baggage isn't always intended to be a, a bad thing, but, but we come with the luggage of our past. And uh, we're going to have to try to work out some of those things and find out what's just tradition, what's important, what is commandment, uh, what things can I compromise on, what things must I not compromise on. And the Jews and Gentiles were really struggling with that. And if you come from a background uh, of uh, whatever, you know, differences, uh, rich or poor background, uh, black or white background, educated or not educated. Uh, my wife is an extremely educated person, and I am an extremely uneducated person. Uh, and so we have all kinds of differences, and we've got to work out those things. And they're not always natural. They're not always easy. It's so clear when you see in the book of Acts, you know, uh, the way that Jews and Gentiles struggled through 
things like circumcision and eating of meats and observing of days and all different other issues. And we're similar. We don't have those, for the most part, we don't have those same issues. But as we're going through those, one of the things that Paul spends very little time on is helping them work on specific issues. I find that frustrating a little bit because I'd like to just be able to turn to Baz and say, you, stop doing that. And, and, and you, that, that's okay. But really what he's spending time on is saying, you need to figure out how to, how to work together. You need to love one another. You need to see yourself as one. And if you and I are one, I need to cherish you as, as myself and, and, and even more in many ways. If God reconciled us, verse uh, 16, uh, how shameful it would be if I broke up that reconciliation. We're fellow citizens. We talked about in verse 19. What does that mean? We used to, we've, we've come from different countries. But in Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Philippians 3 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven for which we eagerly wait. You know, one of the things that's a big problem today in many churches, I hope it's not here. I have not heard this, but I'd be surprised if it's not somewhere, is politics. You know, uh, I get people regularly, are, are you a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or an Independent? I say, I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, no, no, that's not what I mean. I, I mean, politically, I, yeah, that's what I mean. I, I knew what you meant. I, I'm a Christian. Uh, our citizenship, we are not primarily Americans. We are Christians. We're simply living here. For four years, several years ago, my family lived in South America, in Brazil. And the whole time we were there, I mean, soccer was huge. <laughs> uh, the World Cup was going on during uh, one, of, one of the years that we were there. Politics in Brazil is a lot like politics in the U.S. Neither party likes each other and none of the people like the government. Uh, a lot of similarities, right? Uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of corruption was going on, a lot of scandals, just like the news here. But I was never tempted to become entangled in those things. I was there with the gospel. And so I learned a little bit about soccer rules and a few players so I could kind of join in some conversations. I learned the names of some of the political leaders and the way that the parties were set up and so forth. Uh, again, just so I could have conversations. But I was never tempted to become a part of it because I knew it's not my country. I, I, I don't belong here. I'm just living here for a, a, a short period of time, temporarily. Time we didn't know how long. But I'm here temporarily. And then I'm going to go back to where I am from. That was a little short-sighted on my part because part of what I had in mind was I'm going to go back to the United States after a period of time. But the part about really not being so worried about which political party is corrupt this term or you know, which player is going to score an own goal and then you know, fear for his life or whatever, those things, they were just passing interest. I did not consume my time, and they were never something that was worth debating other Christians about, or anybody about, because they didn't, they didn't pertain to my country. We need to see that about America. 
it's very difficult to do if we have an American passport, <laughs> to, to, to not think of ourselves as Americans. I'm not suggesting we burn our passports or our, our birth certificates, but we have to think of ourselves as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God primarily. I'm emphasizing that a lot here, I understand, because I see it as a problem in nearly every congregation that I go to. Uh, there are people who are just addicted to CNN, MSNBC, Fox, or something, and they are passionate. They're more passionate about their politics than they are about the gospel and about fellowship with each other. And that's just wrong. So we need to see ourselves as fellow citizens, not just citizens, but I need to see others as citizens. I need to see you as citizens. Members of the household, we... You know, one of the most common descriptions for God's people in the scriptures are brethren. We need to think about that these, I'm looking at my brethren. I'm seeing brothers and sisters. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a later lesson. The building. We need to see ourselves as joined together in this temple in which God dwells. He's in our midst we sang uh, yesterday and again this afternoon, I'm very thankful for. Behold, the Holy One of Israel is in our midst. Not just in my midst, but he's in our midst. That puts a, a deeper spin on, uh, on that passage, I think. In Ephesians 3 and in verse uh, 6, he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Again, as we think about fellowship, we get this uh, uh, thought here. We're fellow citizens. We are fellow heirs of the promise through Christ. We're headed to the same place. Uh, we, we are receiving the inheritance from our Heavenly Father because of the sacrifice of His Son and our brother, Jesus Christ. And so we are fellow heirs. Uh, I just read, I guess it was this morning, about a situation in which a person had died and the siblings were fighting about the inheritance. My children won't have that fight <laughs> because there's nothing there. Uh, they, uh, they may fight about the bills, I don't know. Um, uh, but but th to think about fighting with your siblings about an inheritance, if you've ever been a part of that or witnessed that, it, it's one of the saddest things. To, to think about how the death of a parent breaks up the, the family, the, the siblings. And really it hasn't. They were already broken up. But it's this money that, that shows that division. We are fellow heirs. I don't want to cheat you of your inheritance. I want you to receive your full inheritance. And I want to help you with that. And only by doing that am I going to receive my inheritance from God. We are fellow heirs of the kingdom. I don't know how much you've thought about verses 8 through 13. To me, this is powerful, if I've got it right. And I meant to say even at the beginning, if, as I'm going through this, you find some point that you think I've misunderstood or misstated, uh, please help me to see that better later on. Correct me on that. Help me to, to understand that. And so pay attention with me here in these verses and see if I've understood this right. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given 
that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The heavenly places and the principalities and powers, that's talking about the spiritual realm. Uh, that, that's the realm of, of angels and, and uh, non-humans, uh, non-physical realm, the spiritual realm, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The church, us, we are revealing to them the manifold wisdom of God. God can point to the church and say, look at my wisdom and my plan. Now, the fact that that comes on the heels of several verses saying we need to be one, fellow citizens, one body, one temple, or one building, fellow heirs. We show not just the world, you know, Jesus talked about in his prayer that the world might know through our oneness. It's not just the physical world that knows the whole, all of God's creation, the spiritual realm He's emphasizing here, we are making known that. Wouldn't it be a shame for God to have to like cover his hand over some groups? Some Christians say, okay, well, uh, this, this is really a bad example here. But th this is not, they're not following my plan. Don't, don't look at them. But what a beautiful, that's the idea that we're wanting to emphasize. What a beautiful thing it is when brethren dwell together in unity that God can say, this, look, Satan, look, demons. When we talk about the principalities and powers later on in chapter 6, it's the ones that are being fought against. It's the wicked ones in the heavenly places as well. God is saying, look, this was my plan. When, when, when you tried to kill my son and brought about the salvation of the world, when you tried to persecute the church and what it did was united them and caused them to seek out other people to be saved, this was my plan. This was my wisdom. And when we are united and when we are working together, God is vindicated in his plan. I think that is extremely important for us to weigh as fellowship. And so when somebody takes my parking space or when somebody sits in my chair or if they... I don't know, dare I say preach too long? Uh, that's a dangerous thing to say this weekend. Uh, whatever it is, they annoy me about something. Am I going to let my pettiness be more important than God's wisdom? I, I, I need to show. I, I need to be a part of this declaration to the spiritual realm that God was right. This is the manifold wisdom of God. It's the church that's going to make that known. Verse 14. I'll just keep following that thought. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his, inner, through his strength in the inner man, 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to, ex- to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The church needs to be busy glorifying God. And it's not just in our songs. It's not just in our proclamations and our, our words. But it's in our unity. It's the way that we live our life. We need to be glorifying God. The church does that. If the church is in division, we can hardly glorify God. If the church is in division, it hardly manifests God's wisdom. We are certainly the the temple of God. Can you imagine in the Old Testament the temple of God being divided? You know, the the holy place and the most holy place in two two different places. Uh, That's not the temple then. Uh, Those were times when it was clear that God wasn't dwelling there when the temple was being destroyed. And so if there's division in the temple then that's not the temple of the Lord. The Lord's not dwelling there. He says in chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. These seven ones, I don't believe the purpose of this text is to prove that there's one baptism. I think it's, it's greater than that. He is saying there's one baptism that shows us that we need to be unified. He's not proving all of these out of these seven ones. He said, look, there's oneness everywhere. You need to be one. You need to strive for the unity of the Spirit, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, I should say, in verse 3. To endeavor, to to really work hard at. You think about somebody endeavoring. It's not a word that we even use very often. It's, It's a pretty strong idea of putting forth great labor and effort. That's what we need to be doing to have unity. And so, coming in and out of the door... You know, occasionally sending a card or something, uh, maybe being willing to when you're asked to, to do something. That's, that's not endeavoring. We have a joke in our house whenever somebody does something and they get thanked. And uh, you've probably heard the phrase, maybe use it. It's the least I could do. And my response is always, well, why would you only do the least? It's one of those odd American phrases that, you know, you stop and think about. It's like, it's the least I could do? Well, really? You just, you, and so you stop there? You know? <laughs> let's think about that. Let's, do, let's don't do the least that we can do as God's people. Let's endeavor toward the unity of the Spirit. In 221, we skipped over the phrase, in whom the whole body being joined together. That phrase is only used twice, if I understand it right, in the the New Testament. I'm not a Greek scholar. You'll not hear me use any Greek words. But in my studies of that, it seems as if it's only used here in 221. 
And then in chapter 4 and in verse 16, where he makes essentially the same point, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Man, that's a mouthful. That's a sermon full. That's a series of sermons full, if we'll stop and think about it. It's a lifelong challenge. But we need to be joined together. We talked at the beginning about that puzzle piece and trying to think through that, that thought of, are you joined together with other Christians? Or are you floating off in one direction or another? Or maybe somewhat connected to the group, but just loosely no, that's not the picture that we find of being joined and knit together. In studying this word and these phrases that are given here, it seems as if this language is used to refer to construction. So you see the connection with it with a temple in 221. Uh, it certainly has a, a, a connection with fabric, the idea of being knit together. And, you know, my wife always gives me that... <gasps> when I've got a sweater and I find a loose thread because guys, we pull the thread and you know, we keep pulling until it breaks and then we think we've fixed it and we've not, we've just untangled a large part of it and then it falls apart in the wash next or whatever. Something that's knit together is you try to pull on that and what it begins to do is it bunches up and it sort of fights against that pulling and that's why it breaks. We need to be knit together so when Satan tries to pull one of us out, all the rest of us are grabbing hold of that person. That, that's the image that we have. We need to be joined together, knit together. I saw a video recently, uh, the idea of being joined together from a construction term of a farmer who had a shed that he wanted to tear down. And so he tied a big rope around the, the shed and was just going to pull it over with his tractor. And the idea would have been, and what we anticipated as we watched it was, as he pulls that, that shed, that it's just going to collapse. It's going to fall apart. I don't know how old the shed was, but it was well built. And so when he takes off in the tractor, the shed just travels along with him. It looks like a trailer uh, just going on. It's not going to collapse. It finally rolls over, but he's still dragging it intact. That building had been joined together by a craftsman. He knew what he was doing when he put it together. You couldn't drag it apart. That's the way that we need to be. God has joined us together. We usually think about that in a marriage setting. Well, okay, I'm all right with that. We'll get to Ephesians 5. He's going to talk about Christ and the church. We need to be joined together with the Lord, but we need to be joined together with each other as well. Look back at Psalm 133. Make an observation. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I struggle with words because I don't think that I can adequately convey this thought. If it wasn't raining, I, I might suggest that we do a project. Do you see at the beginning of this psalm, there's a description? You have a title that's probably added by the authors, but you have another description that was a part of the psalm. It is a song of ascents. 
A-S-C-E-N-T-S. What that means, and there's a couple of different ideas, it's probably all of them put together. The songs of ascent, the psalms of ascent, were songs that the children of Israel would sing during the feast as they would be traveling to Jerusalem. And so you would have caravans of people traveling from various countries down the roads. And just imagine them getting closer and closer to Jerusalem on these different roads. And as they would be traveling together, they would sing. They weren't all in separate cars. A lot of them would be walking. And as they would be traveling together, they would sing these songs. Historians also tell us that as they would approach the temple in Jerusalem and go up the steps, they would sing these songs together. It's not just singing like we did, like we talked about last night of Isaiah 12. Think about what they were singing as they were going along. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. They're singing this as they're walking together. And to think about that the next time you leave the assembly and then come back. So maybe tomorrow afternoon when we gather together, as you're pulling into the parking lot and, and maybe there's somebody else that's coming in at the same time. If you want to sing it, that'd be fantastic. But I want you to at least meditate on this. As we're walking in to worship God together, one of the things that we ought to have in our mind is oh, how beautiful, how lovely, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You see, how when we come to worship, we're not just all in the same place individually worshiping God. It is a congregational activity. It is an activity of unity. And as we've noted in these passages in Ephesians, it's not just in the assembly. It's in our lives. We need to be knit and joined together and inseparable. But to me, this, this just, it's icing on the cake here. Uh, it's, it's dew on the mountain. Uh, to think about this song as the Jews were, were, were marching to Zion and singing, Behold how good and how... I can't imagine this without thinking, you know, they didn't have songbooks whole, you know, covering their faces. I, I picture them looking at each other. And, you know, hey, there's Roger over there. I don't know if Roger, Roger's not a Jewish name. Uh, you know, uh, there's Jeremiah over there. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell all together in unity. It'd be one of those things that it'd be hard to sing this song as you're walking along without, you know, putting your arm around the shoulders of somebody else. Just thinking about that. We're, we're, we're headed there together. That's the way that we need to be with God. I just want to really impress what God sees when we are in unity. He sees a beautiful thing. And that's what we need to strive for. That needs to be our motivation. It's what causes us to, to push forward. May the Lord bless you.